What's up? What's up, Ego Hackers? This is C.S. Joseph. Welcome to Season 31, Episode 13, Why Sex Before Marriage is Not a Sin. So we've been going in really deep on intergender dynamics and, in general, how that's been affected, uh, by and large, uh, societally. And... uh, where each of the genders stand in relation to each other and in relation to society. But uh, today we're going to be looking at one of the biggest uh, societal um, influences or nuances uh, over, you know, sexuality and people's relationships. And it comes from, you know, ultimately the church and how the church itself Uh, being the preeminent power of mankind over the last couple thousand years, it's really important to understand uh, kind of where they're coming from, where they're going, etc., and how ultimately uh, some of their belief systems have fundamentally affected society and ultimately men and relationships that we know it. For example... I can't be a masculine man in a church. I cannot behave masculine in a church. I can't go to church and potentially, potentially exercise my belief system without being demonized, vilified, or absolutely destroyed, shunned, or removed, kicked out. And I have been kicked out of many a church in my time uh, because of masculinity not being allowed within the church. And uh, one of those things is... uh, it's really just, yeah, I do have laundry going because Railgun decided to turn it on during the show, which I'm going to stop now. It's annoying. Cool. Our SC hero is not really aware of consequences to actions, and sometimes she's just not really aware of uh, what's going on because she gets so focused on what she needs to do that she's not really understanding how her making NI inferior choices can negatively impact other people, right? So welcome to ESTPs. For more on that, I recommend watching the recently reviewed ESTP Hypocrisies episode uh, released. Um, it was released at csjoseph.ly forward slash members in the journeyman membership. I want to check it out. I actually talk about aspects of my marriage quite frequently within that episode. So if you guys want to kind of get a better idea of what I have to deal with on my day-to-day in terms of my marriage, I highly recommend you check out that episode because um, I definitely don't hold back and I do not mince words at all. Enjoy that one. I think uh, recently some uh, STP women uh, within the Facebook group have said that uh, I was uncharacteristically brutal uh, in uh, that episode. So hopefully uh, we'll see how that goes. So yeah. Who's an occultist? I'm not an occultist. I I don't know why people think I'm an occultist. Uh, Hopefully they're not talking about me. Uh, Yes, I am serious today. So there's always plans for INFJ content. 
Yeah, well, sin technically means missing the mark, but uh, I guess we will start by defining sin exactly. What What is sin defined? And sin, at least from the Judeo-Christian point of view, is that anything that does not follow the Ten Commandments, basically, that's that's what sin is. That's that's the standard. The standard is the Ten Commandments. Um, and we're actually going to be going into the Ten Commandments today in today's episode. And we're going to be doing it live because I'm sure some people have some interesting comments and I'd like to be able to provide additional explanation live as some of the comments come in. Uh, So this is kind of going to be a little bit more open uh, than usual, but not entirely a, um, you know, an open forum per se. So, uh, but anyway, um, the problem with culture and the problem with live as we know it is that... uh, Men, uh, in general, just aren't really allowed to be masculine in church, like not even remotely. And I maintain that if you are a staunch uh, Christian man who participates in Western society, uh, church practices, um, chances are you're a beta, chances are you're emasculated by your own religion and your own belief system, and chances are you're less of a man. And I probably wouldn't really respect you that much. Now, I could respect you in terms of your convictions, but in terms of your masculinity, I wouldn't be able to respect you very much. I don't care how socialized and I don't care how um, conditioned you are by your belief system and by your church to think that you are being a man because you're participating uh, in the belief system and because you hold and uphold their highest convictions, their moral convictions, especially their sexual convictions, then that makes you more of a man than me, apparently. The reality of the situation is that it doesn't. It doesn't at all. And uh, you're just being led astray like everybody else, and you're being manipulated, and you have literally no idea how to even be a man or even live your life accordingly. And today's episode is dedicated to you, you, the involuntary celibate who really takes the Bible as the infallible holy word of God, even though it's not. And uh, we'll, we'll explain a little bit why that is the case today. And uh, we're, we're going to be uh, identifying how you've allowed the church to utterly destroy what it means for you to be a man. Just as I have allowed the church to do the same thing to me, but no longer. I think that's one of the reasons why I'm no longer welcome at churches, because I have a tendency to criticize people and call them out on their bullshit intellectual hypocrisy when it comes to anything biblical. I guess this is what happens, you know, when I was raised by a pastor. My dad still pastors a church uh, in Washington State. He was recently invited to pastor another church in Texas. And uh, he has all these pastoral opportunities going for him. And But no, I was just that rebellious pastor's kid who literally saw the bullshit for what it was within the church. And now I no longer live my life according to the church or church doctrine or ultimately churchianity. I am an extremely anti-church person. I do maintain my own spiritual beliefs outside of the church. I guarantee you there's nothing occult about them. For those of you that like to claim that I'm an occultist because Kroll Jung apparently was an occultist or whatever, that's not the case. If you really think that I am an occultist, then I really suggest you read Carl Jung's book, Ion, A-I-O-N, which the four sides the mind is actually based on. You can find that at csjoseph.life forward slash reading, where I have my entire bibliography uh, and my entire library of everything that I've read. I update it about twice a year, adding all the new books that I've read to that list, and uh, it just keeps growing every single year. 
So if you would like to read what I have read and read with me, you're welcome to do so. And if you want a free Audible or Kindle account to give you a first free book, first one's free, etc., you can have those opportunities available for you at that same page, that csjoseph.life forward slash reading. Uh, and it's, it's very, uh, very, so dude, it's Amy in the, uh, in the chat says depends on the church, but still no person is perfect. No, it does not depend on the church. All of the churches are false. All of them. If you're of the Mormon church, your church is false because Joseph Smith, who is a TI trickster, ENFP, literally founded the belief system and just introduced even more rules. Yes, there's some really good positives about the Mormon church. Out of all the churches out there, out of all the churches out there, the Mormon church produces predominantly the best men or the best women and the best family scenarios. I appreciate that about them. I also appreciate about the fact that they don't actually have a pastor and they don't engage in the pagan practice known as sophistry, which is exposed in the book by Frank Viola, uh, who is an INTJ, and he wrote Pagan Christianity. A hardcore Christian INTJ he is, just like a hardcore Christian INTJ that Rollo Tomasi is, and he wrote the Red Pill books, right? And doing a lot of that exposing, because they are triple pragmatic, and they need to expose the church for how affiliative it is and how it's literally destroying people's lives. The Mormon church is no different, just like Islam is also no different than the Mormon church, because Muhammad is an ENFP, okay? An ENFP who goes around claiming claiming that he's God's prophet when no other prophet before him ever claimed to be a prophet. Not even Jesus made that claim. Yet all of a sudden he gets to make that claim, right? Hashtag contradiction, okay? I don't trust Muhammad. I don't trust Joseph Smith. I don't trust these people. These people just made like add-ons. But even more than those people, I don't trust the Nicene Creed. I don't trust in Sola Scriptura, which is this Catholic belief that... Uh, whatever is canonized is the holy word of God. No, it is not. That is also a false premise, okay? So if anyone was gonna ask me, okay, Chase, so what exactly is God's word then? Well, Chase, what exactly is your belief system? They always ask me, and I'll, I'll answer right now what my belief system is. My belief system is critical thinking. That is my belief system. So if you, if you ever have any question as to what my belief system is, that is my belief system, critical thinking. And I'll read all of the spiritual books out there. I'm very well studied in Theosophy, which is technically the occult. I'm very well studied in Blavatsky, Manly P. Hall, Albert Pike. I'm reading Aleister Crowley. Not because I support these belief systems or I like these belief systems, but because I want to gain understanding. Understanding of belief systems that I don't even like because guess what? Other people's belief systems causes them to make decisions. And when they make decisions, it creates consequences that affect my life on an everyday basis. Something I wish more people within this audience would be willing to do. Instead of spending all their time playing World of Warcraft or Diablo 2 or Halo Infinite, which is around the corner, you know, uh, they actually get off their ass and actually educate themselves. It's not hard. Draw yourself a very hot bath, lay in it for 30 minutes, and listen to an audiobook. It's not that hard. Treat yourself. Just do it right. Or go on a walk every day, right? Close your rings on your, on your Apple Watch while you are, uh, you know, exercising and get educated with an audiobook. It's not hard, okay? While you're driving to work, read an audiobook. It's not hard. Like, if I can read 24 to 52 books a year, well, what's your excuse? Seriously, what's your excuse? So before y'all start getting judgmental towards me, 
about like my belief system or how I'm an occultist or how I'm full of shit or whatever. Okay, that's fine. But at least get up off the floor and read a book. Okay, get off the couch and read a book. And if you can't take the time to read a book, then stop being so judgmental. I'm looking at you ESTPs, especially like your lack of reading comprehension or your lack of uh, ability to sit still while reading because ESTPs rarely read a book. My wife just completed the fourth book she's ever read in her entire life. She's 24 years old, okay? So just give you an idea. I understand that ESTPs have a hard time reading books, but that's still no excuse. Still no excuse. Find a way. Absolutely find a way. Not a fan of Scientology. Not a, not a, not, not a fan of it. So do I follow the teachings of Ayn Rand? Like Randian objectivism? Uh, sometimes. Just depends. Uh, John Galt is an ENTP. So, uh, yeah. But anyway. So, but the belief system that I have the biggest problem with is belief systems that follow the Nicene Creed. So ultimately, I have the biggest problem with Christianity. You know, I've said many times that, like, you know, if I had the opportunity to press a red button, that would cause craters to be where every single church building stood on this planet simultaneously. I would press the button in a heartbeat because I hate the church. I hate it. I hate it. I'm going on record right now to say that I hate church with a fiery passion because the church is, to me, just one big lie. It's a lie. A really big lie. That's not to say that they can't tell the truth. Sure, they can. But predominantly is a lie, and they are all just been conditioned and socialized to think that they're telling the truth, to think that they're doing the right thing, when the reality situation is they're not. They're doing the opposite. Um, it's, uh, it's more like, actually, the, the teachings of demons, I, I would say. Um, so I'm a very anti-church person, and that's because churches, whether or not they're Catholic or Protestant, they all follow the Nicene Creed, and I think the Nicene Creed is absolutely evil. The idea that just some group of old men led by Constantine, little gray-haired men, get to sit in a room and vote on what they think is God's word and then expect the rest of the whole world to uh, like listen to, you know, to believe that this is the infallible holy word of God is absolute bullshit to me. Like, why, why do they get to choose what is biblical canon and what is not, right? Because if they didn't have the Nicene Creed, maybe the Apocalypse of Peter would still be considered God's work or actually be within the Bible. And if it really was in the Bible, there's a specific passage in the uh, Apocalypse of Peter that heavily condemns abortion, for example. Do you think that abortion would be legalized and legal today or actually well-practiced by most women uh, today? Well... Uh, no, because that would have been part of our culture, but it's not part of our culture because of the Nicene Creed. And the Council of Trent, don't get me started about the Council of Trent. Both of them are completely and totally farce in terms of their biblical teachings. I just, I just it's so ridiculous. So forgive the boring introduction re uh, relating to church history and church politics, but it's heavily necessary to this discussion. I, I don't think that there are people who are pragmatic enough or have the guts to even talk about this stuff. But of course, it would take an outsider and an exile like myself who used to be a part of the church, at the very center of the church, at every aspect of the church, consistently. Hell, I even used to be a youth pastor to a point. And that was a shit show. Um, 
I had these two girls uh, who seemed to be very interested in, interested in me and being really friendly with me, a married man, uh, on Facebook Messenger. And I had to provide photos of that interaction uh, with their parents, and I resigned from my position immediately. And I've never, I've never went back. Because, you know, we live in this culture where even an accusation of wrongdoing would just destroy your life, regardless of evidence. And that's not a position I'm going to put myself into. Right? So, it's situations like that that give me pause when it comes to the church and how everyone is so willing, especially, you know, a lot of churched up FJs are so willing to accept, you know, these social norms and how the social norms of the church to determine their own thinking instead of exercising critical thinking. This is something I'm trying to be the opposite of. I'm trying to be the opposite of my mother. I'm trying to be the opposite of my uh, mother-in-law, basically, who are FJs. I'm opposite of my father and my father-in-law, even, who are FJs. To be opposite of FJs, who I would say, by and large, throughout my life, have allowed social norms to dictate their own thinking. Because I get it, psychologically, from an FJ standpoint, you know, how can something be true if it's not socially accepted? Because people should accept if something is truth, right? If it's true, then people should, it should be socially acceptable, right? Well, that's not how the world works, FJs. And it takes a long time for FJs, as they grow older and as they grow wiser, to all of a sudden realize that that's not exactly the case. And then all of a sudden they realize that they shouldn't allow social norms to determine their thinking anymore or to base their thinking on social norms anymore. That should be the opposite. They should allow their thinking to determine social norms and to enforce social norms based on their own thinking. That's what it's supposed to be. That's what's supposed to happen. So there's a lot of... Uh, there's a lot of problems out there. So this episode is going to talk about how church doctrine has influenced society such that men are effectively miserable and we live in a society of, you know, bullshit, basically. I was raised that premarital sex was a sin and I was an evil person for engaging in premarital sex, for example. Um, and there's, 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 a lot of, there's a lot of crap that goes along with that. Uh, but oftentimes, you know, when it comes to the church, men are guilted into giving up their masculinity because of these so-called principles, because of these so-called things. And, you know, a lot of times, you know, they, they pull out their Bibles and they go look at, you know, verses involving sexual immorality, right? So today we're going to do something a little bit different. Uh, different than I typically do. And this is going to be a very different lecture, and I don't expect this lecture to be very popular. It'll be very uh, controversial, and I'll get a lot of crap for it, especially from Christians. Uh, but uh, I think it's necessary to understand the etymology or the source of some of uh, you know, the suffering that we have within our culture. And I maintain that the church is right front and center to the absolute suffering of our culture. Uh, sexuality in the long run is ultimately what makes people happy in the long run uh, definitely makes men happy and then men get their legacy from it as well and having that uh, freedom of sexual expression and oftentimes the church has gotten in the way and destroyed people's lives because of incorrect teaching and incorrect interpretations um, 
and there's a ton of them. Like, uh, for example, the Apostle Paul says, you know, you should not get married unless you, you're burning with passion. Most people think that's when a man's just being horny and he should get married because he's just being horny, but it has nothing to do with that. Paul's only saying only get married if you want to be with the same woman for the rest of your life because you burn with passion for that one woman and that you're not going to grow bored of her. That's, that's what Paul's actually saying, but you can see how the church has completely twisted that uh, to fit their bullshit monogamous uh, Malthusian narrative, right? And Malthusianism is ultimately why the church behaves the way that it does. Uh, Malthusianism, uh, another another example of what Malthusianism is, um, if, you have, if you ever heard of the Georgia Guidestones, which are very controversial things, uh, there's a photo of the Georgia Guidestones recently where they were uh, defaced and someone um, was right, uh, doing some graffiti of superlatives against uh, calling out the New World Order, for example, with the uh, Georgia Guidestones. The Georgia Guidestones talks about Malthusianism, which is um, which is, supports eugenics. Basically, only certain races should be allowed to live. Everyone else is cattle. Basically, everyone who d is not fit or considered or deemed fit, genetically fit, basically, then they're to be treated like cattle and their their basic lives regimented and their freedoms taken away. No bodily autonomy. Extract you know debt slavery. Extract everything you can get from that person, etc. And that is, you know how what many would say the elite sees the rest of the world. And it's based on Malthusianism. Malthusianism is that we need to make sure that we're controlling the population so it doesn't get out of hand because there won't be enough resources for the population. When biologically that's not true because if there's a lack of resources, people stop reproducing naturally. Just like animals stop reproducing naturally. It's what happens, okay? If there's a lot of resources, then reproduction continues. And that, that's a, a really, really big problem. So based on this Malthusianism that's been in the church uh, since, uh, you know, especially the deepest levels of underneath c cathedrals where they find obelisks, which are occultic symbols instead of crosses, etc., you know, um, where um, priests and the clergymen would worship their true God and their true Savior, their true Lord, etc., which had nothing to do with Jesus Christ, uh, for example they would practice Malthusianism. And the church had to do something because resources were being run out. Uh, knights and everyone would give on to brigandism. That's why they created the code of chivalry. And then they ultimately created the code of monogamy. And monogamy is one man for one wife. And they did it in such a way for all for legal reasons, but they did it also in an effort to curb uh, population growth, right? And one of the teachings that they use to enforce this is saying that premarital sex is a sin and that man or a man can only have sexual access if he is married, which is wrong. This is fundamentally wrong and this is incorrect thinking. And they do this based on uh, things called sexual immorality. Um, uh, and the question of sexual immorality is is, is a big deal. Um, so I'm actually going to be opening uh, up with some um, Bible verses today. So uh, let's talk about sexual immorality, places that sexual immorality has been mentioned, at least in the New Testament. Um, 
Matthew chapter 5, verse 32. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Matthew 15, 19. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. Uh, Matthew 19, 9. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Mark 7, 21. For from within, out of the heart of a man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery. John eight forty one, You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Acts fifteen twenty. But should write to them, abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. And Acts fifteen twenty nine that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. Acts twenty one twenty five. Uh, same thing. Uh, then we get into Romans, more of the Apostle Paul. So we're out of Luke talking, now we're in the Apostle Paul. Romans 13, 13. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. 1 Corinthians 5, 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and, a, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. Oh, wow. 1 Corinthians 5.11 But now I'm writing to you to not associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, and so on and so forth. It keeps going and going and going and going. And the word sexual immorality is actually known as the word uh, porneia. Okay. And... This is ultimately a mistranslation. This is one of the reasons why I maintain the Bible is not the infallible holy word of God. Because to me, God's word equals the words of the prophets plus the words of Jesus minus mistranslation and biblical interpolation. Okay? That's the thing. That's the standard. If you really want to know what God, God's word actually is. Anything else, including the words of Paul, they're just guidelines. They're what the Mormons would call words of wisdom, a.k.a. recommendations, but not commands or requirements. All right. So for the purpose of this episode, I'm actually going to be defining what sexual immorality actually is. What is the actual definition? So what is sexual immorality? Or shall we say, what is sexual morality? So, uh, I will list them out. It is no incest, no sex with children, so no pedophilia, okay? Uh, no sex during menstruation. That's a shocking one, but yes, that, that counts um, according to uh, original uh, Jewish understandings of uh, sexual immorality. No sex with another man's woman, okay? That violates uh, the 10th commandment, which is thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, basically. Uh, and uh, and that's, that's for men. Uh, for women, it's no sex with anyone other than your husband without permission. Um, yeah. Uh, and no ritual prostitution. Ritual prostitution, like, for example, that uh, Paul was preaching against in Corinth in the books of Corinthians, 
uh, people would go to the temple of Aphrodite. They would have sex with the temple priestesses every week the, uh, as part of their worship at the temple. And uh, it's like free love, you know what I'm saying? And uh, they do it like every Sunday, basically. And those priestesses would get pregnant, they'd have babies, and they throw those babies into a furnace and sacrifice them to the demon Moloch, basically. You know, um, so which basically, you know, Christians, you know, or people can make the argument that abortion is a form of demon worship, uh, you know, based on that standard. So regardless, uh, these are some of the things that, you know, that, that, is, that is the actual definition of sexual immorality. Please note that uh, fornication, a.k.a. extramarital sex, a.k.a. premarital sex, is not listed in that definition whatsoever. Please also note that regular prostitution is not listed in sexual immorality either. So I've just given you like the actual definition of sexual immorality that apparently like churches just don't get. Uh, also, you know, sexual immorality is also oftentimes churches will teach that, you know, you can't have more than one wife, but that's not true because if that was the case, that would directly contradict what one of the church fathers, AKA the apostle Paul, the apostle Paul said that, you know, women have to be dressed in a certain way. They can't even talk in church, etc. And in the same breath, he's basically saying, oh yeah, hey, by the way, a man should only have one wife if he's in part of church leadership so he can focus on the things of God instead of just the things of his family. If he has more than one wife, then he has to deal with his family affairs and he won't be able to serve God in such a way. So therefore, if he's in church leadership, he should only have one wife. And that's the only limitation provided in the Bible. But churches would like to twist that and say it is a part of sexual immorality. It's not. It's not. So... We're going to be pulling up an extra source. It was written by Charles Toy of the Christian Left blog, who is an INTP. And INTPs are awesome because they often um, they often uh, have uh, well really good research, just like Bart Ehrman, um, which I recommend that you read if if you can. Bart Ehrman, E H R M A N. Quote. The Bible does not forbid premarital sex. There is no passage of the Bible that references premarital sex as a sin against God. The association between sin and premarital sex is a new Christian idea. The only possible reference to premarital sex being a sin in the Bible is in the New Testament. This premise, though, is generally dismissed by theologians because the Greek word pornei or porneia or sexual immorality is commonly incorrectly translated into the English word fornication. In biblical times, women were the owned property of a man. Men ruled over women and their children. Women had very few, if any, rights, and men often bought women from their families or at an auction, usually at the age of 12 and a half. The fathers owned the women, aka daughters, wives, concubines, handmaidens, servants, etc. And if you wanted to have intercourse with one of his properties, then you had to ask his permission. If a father sold a daughter, he would get more money for her if she was a virgin. Non-virgins were less expensive to buy. If a man purchased a daughter at a virgin price, she was not, or she did not bleed during intercourse, then he could return her to her father and get his money back. Most marriages were arranged for financial reasons. Many couples never even met until the day of marriage. On the day of marriage, the proposed husband would give a dowry or monetary compensation or payment. He would literally pay for a woman to the father of a bride. 
the price of the dowry was different from woman to woman. And it was determined by the father. And it was based on the woman's beauty, ability to bear children, strength, household skills, and status as a virgin. In the Old Testament, many verses that people cite for being against premarital sex are actual verses against stealing another man's property. For example, in Exodus chapter 22, verse 16 and 17, if a man seduces a virgin who is not engaged and lies with her, he must pay the bride price for her and she will be his wife. If her father absolutely refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. So according to this verse, the only reason any wrong was done is because the father of the woman lost money when the man and the woman consented to having premarital sex without her father's knowledge. The passage showed that through premarital sex, the man is actually stealing from the woman's father. The difference in value between her being a virgin and her being a non-virgin. It does not show that premarital sex is wrong. In Deuteronomy chapter 22, verses 28 through 29, it says, quote, If a man finds a girl who is a virgin who is not engaged and seizes her and lies with her and they are discovered, and then the man who lay with her shall give uh, to the girl's father 50 shekels of silver, and she shall become his wife because he has violated her, he cannot divorce her all his days. This shows that forced premarital sex or rape is also stealing. But unlike the book of Exodus, this trespass provides a punishment as the male rapist not only stole from the woman herself, but from the woman's father as well. Kind of interesting that she still has to marry her rapist, right? And no one no one talks about that. You guys do realize that rape laws uh, all throughout the world uh, followed, uh, actually was under, you know, on the books under property destruction and property theft. It had nothing to do with like human rights. I'm not saying this is a good thing. I'm just showing you like that's your history, folks. Understand it. Another example of premarital sex in the Old Testament was given in Deuteronomy chapter 21, uh, verse 10. This is a case in which a man takes a woman captive and if he wants to make her his wife, he must follow the conditions it sets forth and then have intercourse with her. Then if she is found to be desirable as he has the option of marrying her or sending her away. So then, okay, interesting. This passage not only condones premarital sex, but maybe even divorce as well. Wow. Okay. Thank you, ignorant church people. Thank you. You don't even know your own Bible. How pathetic you are. Even the Ten Commandments doesn't forbid premarital sex. Most Christians would classify premarital sex under the Seventh Commandment. Thou shalt not commit adultery. But adultery is defined as voluntary sexual intercourse between a married person and a person who is not their spouse. If neither persons are married, it cannot be adultery. I would actually like to take this point a little bit further, folks. Adultery could only be... Um, uh, basically, the only person that can commit adultery is a woman. A man cannot commit adultery unless he's having sex with an adulteress. An adulteress is a prerequisite for adultery to take place. So if a man is married, if a man is married and he has sex with another man's wife, he committed adultery because she is an adulteress because she belongs to another man. However, if a man is married or in a committed relationship and has sex with a woman that does not belong to another man, he did not commit adultery. A lot of people don't get that. Thou shalt not commit adultery in the Ten Commandments was for women only. 
Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife was for men only. One is a female commandment. The other one is a male commandment. And a lot of people don't understand this. And then they expect all of us to live in this bullshit society that we live in following these bullshit standards. Wow. Great. Great. That's just fantastic. If the man performing the premarital sex was married and the woman was not, in biblical times, this did not matter. The reason for this was that in biblical times, adultery was defined as a situation in which there was the danger of a married woman being impregnated by another man. Oh, that's why men don't like women having a high body count because the higher a body count a woman has, the more likely she's going to basically cuck him. You know, that's, uh, that's, that's how, how women rape men, by cucking them. When they find out their child isn't even their child anymore. The same pain women feel when they're raped is the same pain men feel when they find out that they're, they've been cucked. Great. Great, but you know, we, we can't we can't do that either. Uh, so this is also why sex with a prostitute is was not adultery, even if the man is married. In the Hebrew understanding of adultery, commandment of Moses, adultery as understood by what Moses said was only wrong for married women and never a married man. Even Solomon a great prophet of the Bible who was said to be favored by God had 700 princesses and 300 concubines. The Bible shows that polygamy, rape, incest, and orgies were not only accepted, but were often rewarded by God and were common practice of great men of the Bible, none of whom were ever spoken out against in the Bible. This is another contradiction churches have wrong. They don't even know their own Bible. They don't even know what they're teaching. Christ's teachings at the Sermon on the Mount were that the only law is the law of love. He showed that by reversing the four of the Old Testament laws which conflicted with loving people, therefore, that's why he said, love your neighbors yourself. Therefore, anything that was unkind or not by mutual consent, etc., would be immoral for a Christian. But obviously, it would not be immoral to love sexuality before marriage or because of different but natural sexual orientation. Okay, I'm now going to quote everything that Jesus said about homosexuality right now. Okay, that's it. I, I'm done. All right. Oh, that's right. Jesus said nothing about homosexuality, yet it's constantly condemned, and it's condemned as an aspect of sexual immorality. No, it's not. Homosexuality is not a part of the definition of sexual immorality. That is a misnomer church doctrine bullshit that has nothing to do with anything. It's a lie, okay? Jesus never condemned homosexuality, and the only people that did was just the opinion, an opinion of an ENTJ known as the Apostle Paul. It was just an opinion. It wasn't a command. And even then, it can be argued that it is actually a mistranslation. Don't believe me? Then please tell me why the male G-spot is up their ass. Why did God supposedly create men to have that? Could you explain that to me? Hmm? Hmm? Oh, wait, that's right. You can't because you're full of crap. Get out. It's not part of the definition of sexual immorality. 
The New Testament says nothing about premarital sex. Some versions do, uh, though, do mistranslate the Greek word porneia, which means sexual immorality, into the English word fornication, which means sexual intercourse with someone uh, who is not married to. Porneia, meaning sexual immorality, included such things as having sex with a woman during menstruations, adultery, temple prostitution, pederasty, also known as uh, a pedophilia, and incest. Uh, something that Herodias uh, and King Herod were made fun of, and then ultimately the ENTP, John the Baptist, was executed for that. Porneia, uh, meaning uh, sexual immorality, included such things as having sex with a woman during... Men's okay, uh, adultery, although, is not the same sin we know today, in which it is common for a man and woman to be considered equal because of the equalist mindset, because of the John Locke, all men are created equal and endowed by the creator... No, 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 no. The genders are not equal, but because we have equalism, that means men commit adultery too. No, women do. Men just participate in it. Women are the ones who commit adultery. The Hebrew understanding of adultery was that it was wrong for a married woman to have sex with another man since that violated her husband's property rights to his wife. It was not wrong for a man because a woman had no such property rights. A married man could have as many wives as he could afford as long as he did not marry another man's property. Temple prostitution was actually the practice of the prostitutes in the temples of Corinth selling their services as a part of the worship of a pagan fertility goddess, which was what Paul was warning against when he spoke of uniting the members of Christ with a prostitute in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12-17. through 17. This passage was not even specifically about prostitution, which was still legal and very popular in modern-day Israel. But prostitution used as a form of pagan worship. That's what Paul was criticizing. He was speaking out against idolatry, not against prostitution. Folks, idolatry means you worshiping an idol and not worshiping God. Pedophilia was one of the worst of all sexual sins, and it took on many forms. The practice of pederasty or pedophilia falls into three different categories. The first form is that of a sexual relationship between an older man and a young boy. The second is the practice of having a sexual relationship with slave prostitutes. Third is having a sexual relationship with an effeminate male prostitute, commonly called a callboy or gigolo. Other such practices included two heterosexual males degrading one another by anal intercourse after capturing them in a battle. Another practice was heterosexuals using anal intercourse to drive away other heterosexual strangers they didn't like. An example of this would be the story of Sodom and Gomorrah from Genesis chapter 19. Two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening and Lot was sitting in the gate of the city. And when he saw them, he got up to meet them and bowed down to his face to the ground. My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet and spend the night and then go on your way the early next morning. And they're like, no, we want to spend the night in the square. But he insisted so strongly that they go with him and entered his house. He prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast, and they ate. And before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded Lot's house. And they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. All right. Popularity, folks. So... Most people think that the story of Sodom and Gomorrah is specific to, to homosexuality and being anti-homosexuality. It has nothing to do with homosexuality. 
So, as uh, Charles says here, this story had nothing to do with homosexuality. Sexual orientation is a modern concept and was not labeled as such in biblical times. It is far better stood in the modern era. This was a story of hospitality, as displayed by Lot. The men had surrounded the house for the sole purpose of gang-raping the unwanted travelers. And Lot, the owner of the house, even offered his virgin daughters to calm the mob and save his guests. This not only shows that pederasty was at times culturally accepted in biblical times, but it also proves that women were thought of as property and little more. That's not saying either one of the above is okay. It was just practice. And yes, folks, I'm not saying any of these things are okay. I'm saying what is practiced. Know your history. In every case of premarital sex in the Bible, there is no punishment for the sexual act. The only penalty is that the man had to pay compensation to the father for the woman's change in market value. Wait a minute. Are we talking about women who have sexual market value? Wait. Wait. Today, however, most women are of a comparable status to men in most parts of the Christian world. There is no market value for daughters in Christian cultures. Given this, it stands to reason that the only uh, penalty for having premarital sex is now gone. In fact, a document authorized by the House of Bishops of the Episcopal Church stated that the passages in the biblical book Song of Songs are in praise of sexual love, celebrating youthful passion, with no reference to marriage. It affirms that sexual love is itself good and beneficial, regardless of marriage. If the notion of God allowing one practice during certain periods of time and not others seems absurd to you, consider God speaking through the prophet Nathan, saying that if David's wives and concubines were not enough, he would have given David even more. This is after David, who is an NFJ, saw Bathsheba, the NFP woman, who was being a hypergamous hoe on the roof of her house. David was in the wrong place at the wrong time because he should have been out at war, but he stayed home and let his general handle the war. And then this NFP memorized that David would be walking on the roof of his house at certain times of the day. So she arranged for herself to be completely naked and bathing and being very sensual to cause him to desire her. And he did. And he ordered, he sent guards down to go pick her up. And then he brought her into his house and he fucked her that night. The problem is, the problem is, is that she was married to Uriah the Hittite. And then afterwards, David had him murdered. And then he took Bathsheba as his queen, basically. Okay? And then God, speaking through the prophet Nathan, said, how dare you do this? Saying that if you, of all the wives that you have and all the concubines you already have was not enough, I would have given you even more than that. But you had to do that. You had to murder this guy. You had to take another man's woman. You had to violate the commandment. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. Really? Screw you. And then after that, all of David's wives and concubines were thrown out into the street, basically, and basically taken as property by other men within that culture and raped and, and whatnot. Wow. Wow. Real awesome, right? Today, many women have the same social and political freedoms that men have always had, but to say that responsible premarital sex or fornication is somehow wrong shows little more than ignorance to biblical teaching. Many of the sexually repressive teachings that developed in the Middle Ages are still being followed today. These teachings are based on oppressive Christian traditions that have no biblical basis other than ignorance, and in my opinion, Malthusianism. Uh, 
the the uh, the kind of uh, belief system that is uh, taught uh, in Aleister Crowley's book, The Book of the Law. What's taught in Morals and Dogma by uh, Albert Pike. What's taught by Manley P. Hall. What's taught by Elena Blavatsky. What's taught by the Georgia Guidestones. Look all that up. That is their belief system. As we shall see from further discussion, the key word above is responsible. It remains obvious when, un, when one examines the entirety of the Bible that marriage is God's desired endgame for partners in a committed, loving sexual relationship. A final note to those who might quote one man, one woman passage in Matthew 19. Jesus is talking about the act of marriage here, not premarital sex. Jesus didn't say one word about premarital sex. Since Jesus was a Jew, he was undoubtedly very familiar with the Torah. Let's examine Judaism's attitude towards premarital sex as well. It's rather intriguing. After that, we'll wrap it up. The Torah does not outlaw premarital sex. Okay, and then he gives like a lot of evidence as to why Judaism just doesn't really care about it whatsoever. Um... So I, I don't need to keep going through all this, but I would like to say though, as part of the um, as part of the bibliography here, if you guys want to know where this guy got his stuff, um, Robert Brow wrote Adultery and Exploration of Love and Marriage uh, in 1993. Premarital sex is not a sin against God, um, which is uh, uh, posted on November 2013 at 123helpme.com. Jewish Views on Premarital Sex uh, on MyJewishLearning.com. The Reality of Sex Outside of Marriage, colon, Non-Marital Sex is Not Ideal, but That Doesn't Mean Judaism Has Anything to Say About It by Rabbi Elliot and Dwarf, also on My Jewish Learning. And then he has the NIV uh, there as well. But there's so much more evidence uh, outside of just, you know, this blog post and whatnot. But I wanted you guys to have, you know, those basic resources, etc. So the bottom line is that premarital sex is not a sin. And if you have anyone tell you otherwise, they're out of their mind. They are very ignorant and they don't know what they're talking about. So uh, we have Gustavo saying, but I say unto you that whosoever shall put away his wife, save for the cause of fornication. No, that's the fornication is not there. That it's for porneia, not fornication. That's a mistranslation. Causes her to commit adultery. What happens when a man divorces a woman? What what happens? What happens, Gustavo? Let me tell you what happens. He forces her to become an adulteress, and that's what Jesus was talking about. Because only women could commit adultery. And if you, as the man, are this woman's support structure, because women don't have any rights in those days, if you abandon her and you divorce her, you are forcing her to become an adulteress because she has to go find another man and have sex with him so that that man would take her under his roof and under his headship, basically. So her husband would be divorcing her, which would force her to become an adulteress. That's what Jesus was calling out. It had nothing to do with fornication. It had nothing to do with premarital sex. That's a mistranslation. It's a misinterpretation by the church to move forward their Malthusian agenda instead of actually like in helping people live a better life. Had nothing to do with that. It's bullshit. That's bullshit. Okay. So 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 no. Like any, anyone else want to argue with this? Me? Come on. I, I'm ready. Let's do this. Let's do this. Okay, so this this is the problem. 
so the, the overall is the problem. Everyone believes, or at least everyone in the Christian realm, or at least, you know, believes that premarital sex is a sin. It is not a sin. It, it's it's not. It's not a sin. It's not a problem. It's 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 not. The thing is, is that obviously people need to be respectful of one another. Obviously, people need to do the right thing. But what, how do you do that? What is the solution? I'll read you the solution right now. I'll read you the solution. And it comes from Matthew 5 verse 31 through 37, all right? I'll read it to you right now. Matthew chapter five, verse 31 through 37, quote, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife and give him and let him give her a certificate of divorce. And that's a direct quote Jesus is making from the book of Exodus, from the Torah. And then he says, but I say to you that any everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, which I already defined what that was, and it does not include fornication, makes her commit adultery because she doesn't have any rights as a woman, so she has to go with a man, which means she's going to have to have sex with another man, which means she'd be an adulteress, and then he'd become an adulterer because he's having sex with an adulteress, basically. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Yeah. And then verse 33, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall, not, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. He's talking about promises. He's talking about oaths. He's talking about vows. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all. Do not take a vow at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot take one hair, white or black. So verses 34, 35, and 36 is Jesus ragging on and banging on. Like, he's saying that marriage vows are stupid. He's effectively saying marriage vows are sin. Yeah, get your head around that. Marriage vows are a form of idolatry, folks. That is a form of idolatry. It is marriage vows is no different than the same sin that Adam committed in the Garden of Eden in the book of Genesis. Marriage vows are idolatry. Okay? That's reality. Okay? So people ask me, okay, well then, then what's the solution, Chase? What what is the solution? So everyone asks me, like, okay, what's the golden standard? What's the gold standard of sexuality? Well, Jesus provides that. Verse 37, quote, Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. He literally just said marriage vows are evil, folks. Yeah, they're evil. Because sexuality is supposed to be let your yes be yes and your no be no. Need I remind everyone that up until the 14th century, the church believed that Jesus had a sexual relationship with Mary Magdalene. Why else do you think Mary Magdalene was the very first person Jesus came to after raising from the dead? Huh? Huh? Why is that? And there's evidence of their sexual relationship based on how Mary Magdalene was behaving around Jesus, especially using her hair to wipe his body down with uh, yeah, perfume, etc. Yeah, like it, it was it was basically uh, it was foreplay. It was sexual foreplay, folks. That was foreplay. All right. 
people would use uh spices and oils like like myrrh and frankincense you know in those days before having sex and he stayed with mary magdalene and martha at their home i'm sure he had a sexual relationship with martha unless martha was family to uh, mary magdalene that wouldn't happen but at a minimum he was definitely banging mary magdalene they weren't married hmm? jesus's gold standard of sexuality is right here on the sermon of the mount matthew chapter 5 verse 37 let what you say simply be yes or no, or let your yes be yes and your no be no. That is what it is, folks. That is the gold standard. You don't have to worry about adultery. You don't have to worry about covet the neighbor's wife if you just let your yes be yes and your no be no. If you decide to have sex with another man's wife, you can, as long as you have permission. Then it's not a sin. Then it's not adultery because you have permission, okay? I had sex with another man's wife once. It was an ENTJ. And I listened to him tell me that he was giving me permission to have sex with his wife. And I did for like half a year. It was, you know, and then uh, he even actually flew from where he lived to come shake my hand and thank me. He thanked me for having sex with his wife. He thanked me for taking care of her because she was so alone and lonely as she was traveling around on her working pilgrimage, etc. He thanked me. So let your yes be yes and your no be no. That is the true gold standard of sexuality. That is how we are supposed to be living our life. You know, there, not, not this church bullshit that's premarital sex is a sin. Not this church bullshit that you can only have one woman. That monogamy is, is the only thing that is not sinful. No, that's church propaganda, both of them. It's just propaganda. It's bullshit. It's not true. Okay? So... Men, if you want to have multiple women, go for it. This is actually talked about by the Christian writer Rollo Tomasi in his book, The Rational Male. He calls it plate theory. Plate theory is where he's encouraging young men to not commit to a woman and have multiple, a roster of women that they have regular sexual relations with on a regular basis. And he says, you know, eventually one of those women will try to force you to force commitment and exclusivity. And when that happens, just dump her and then move on to the next one. And only save your commitment for a virgin who is at least 10 to 15 years younger than you and who you plan on having children with. Only save your commitment for that person. But until then, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Men also understand that you will not be held accountable if you have sex with a prostitute there's nothing biblically wrong with having sex with a prostitute nothing biblically wrong about that it is wrong if it's a ritual prostitute like at the temple of corinth but it is not wrong otherwise it's not wrong it's not a sin however solomon in the book of proverbs talks about how unwise it is he never says it's a sin he says it's unwise so don't do it i don't recommend it because it is unwise but not a sin Okay? It is not a sin for a man to have sex, extramarital sex, with a woman who is unmarried. That's not a sin either. A lot of people can't accept that, but it's, it's a fact. It's a fact. Using the actual truth here, the actual, what's, what's actually accurate to like the biblical standards, you know. Now, it is a sin if you promised exclusivity. If you have this agreed upon thing of exclusivity, so if you're going to have 
extramarital relationship, if you're going to have those sexual relationships, then you need to inform your wife that you're going to do that because you have to let your yes, yes, and your no be no. Otherwise, you're just a liar at that point. That's the real standard, folks. That's how sexuality is supposed to work in terms of uh, relationships. Even pornography is not a sin. Pornography is not a sin. Although it can turn into a sin. The act of looking at pornography, not a sin. But it can be a sin if it's exploiting others or if it's pedophilia, for example, right? Or if it... Uh, um, or if it's a form of idolatry because you're addicted to it, if you're addicted to porn, then it's a sin because it's idolatry. But the act of looking at pornography, provided that they're not underage and they don't belong to another man, they're not being exploited in that regard, etc., then it's not a sin. But then again, how do you know that? How do you know that they're not really underage? How do you know that that woman is not a married woman? How do you know that there's permission there? You see? You're opening yourself up to some risks, some moral ethical risk there with pornography. So I would side on the I would I would err on the side of Solomon with this one and say that pornography is an unwise behavior. I would say it's unwise, for sure. Uh, a lot of people have a hard time with me saying these things, but uh, yeah, it's unwise, unwise. Just like uh, having sex with a prostitute is also unwise, not a sin but unwise, definitely. Let your yes be yes, folks, and it'll be no. Don't forget the true definition, the true definition of sexual immorality, which, by the way, even John MacArthur would agree with me on this, that sexual immorality is so loosely translated that it seems to be this huge catch-all thing. It does not include fornication, aka premarital or extramarital sex at all. And it really only includes pedophilia, incest, ritual prostitution, sex during menstruation, and having sex with another man's wife, or having sex with someone who is not your husband without permission. Okay? That is literally the definition of sexual immorality. Okay? So there you go. If you understand these things and can accept these truths, you realize that under true and proper biblical teaching, you have a lot more sexual freedom than you realize. And that's just a fact. Not very many people can accept that because, oh, we're just going to let social norms determine our thinking because it sounds good, it sounds right, but I'm going to do that thing that Paul talks about in Thessalonians and gather up for myself teachers to teach my itching ears what I want to hear because I need it to protect my ego investments. Wow. Pathetic. Pathetic. Let's not be those people. Let's not, let's not be those people. The solution is, folks, let your yes be yes and your no be no. And be honest. Be honest. You have nothing to be afraid of. I already talked about how culture is going in the direction of a poly-related culture. It'll be polyamory for the beta men and polygamy for the alpha men. That's how it's going to happen. It is inevitable. It's around the corner. And that is within the next two years. That will be the norm, if not already the norm. Don't believe me? Look up the Seattle Polyamory Network and how huge it is. Just understand that this is the way it's going to be. This is how the world is going and it's coming around here. 
Monogamy along with the church is dying. The nuclear family is dying. Then again, I maintain that because the nuclear family is dying, people have multiple mothers and multiple fathers around to ingratiate and impress upon those children multiple psyches. And those children will develop rapidly because they have to in order to deal with the harsh condition, uh, conditions of this failing society. For the society is on the corner and literally above, over the precipice of collapsing, if not already. So it's important to me that all of you within the CSJ community are armed with the actual true code of ethics instead of the bullshit ones that you hear at church. You just heard from Jesus' mouth that marriage vows are bullshit. And literally, it's nothing more than just like Adam putting Eve on a pedestal, which is why God cursed him in the Garden of Eden. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. That's what Jesus did. Shouldn't you Christians be following Jesus' example? Shouldn't that be what's happening? It's ridiculous. so ridiculous um some people are asking uh why is sex during menstruation sin i i i can only offer some theories as to why it is considered sin um men it's really hard for men to catch stds from women it's actually very uncommon uh for for men so if you consider pareto principle 80 percent of the time a woman can catch an std or an sti from a man and it's because men's ejaculate carry the disease uh, very easily, and they'll they'll get it. They they will get it. Whereas with a man, it's a twenty percent chance to get a, a one out of five chance to get a sexually transmitted uh, disease from a woman. Again, these are assumptions and theoretical. I don't know what the true statistics are, so I'm just going with the Pareto principle on this one. Uh, but I have seen studies where it is a lot harder for men to contract sexually transmitted diseases compared to women contracting them um, because uh, just just based on biology alone. There's less attack surface uh, on men where there's a lot of attack surface on women, for example, except during menstruation. When a woman is menstruating and if a man has sex with her, he's at even more risk of contracting a disease where to the point where it's an actual guarantee than she is because it's direct exposure to her blood, right? So that's that's the difference. And my theory is, is that sex during menstruation is a sin for that reason, basically, um, to, uh, to protect uh, men from uh, spreading STDs. I, I, th I think that's the main reason. You know, you, you got to understand that, like, people weren't actually washing their hands until, like, the 17 or 1800s, um, specifically. And the only reason people washed themselves in ancient times, especially, you know, in the biblical times of the Old Testament, was to consecrate themselves so that they can go into the temple. It had, nothing, it had everything to do with religious practices. It had everything to do, nothing to do with public health. But I have a feeling that uh, the prophets understood the public health issues and isu issued those rules and edicts, you know, uh, so to keep everyone clean. But human beings in those days couldn't believe in something they couldn't see like germs. So they had to make it all about religion and spirituality when the reality of the situation is they're just having people take a freaking bath, you see, you know, because 
washing hands because of germs didn't become common practice until a bunch of mothers were dying in a hospital because doctors were not washing their hands between delivering babies. That's why. So, okay. Uh, so, okay. Uh, okay. Um, yeah, and smash and dash is definitely not the point of this. If people think that I'm recommending people just, you know, smash a woman and, and leave her afterwards, no. And no one likes that, and it's going to come back and bite you in the butt. And I would err on the side of caution with King Solomon say, that's also pretty unwise, you know, from my point of view, I'm an ENTP. Like, if I have sex with somebody, it's because I love them and I intend to stay loving them indefinitely. And that's just kind of how it works for me. I don't forget any person that I've had sex with and I love every person that I've had sex with. That's just how I am and how I am. And I can't imagine being any other way. You know, it doesn't matter. And I, it's, it's part of the masculine idealism that I'm born with. But the rite of passage, noting that how society and the feminine primary social order and women through their solipsism can just take advantage of me, uh, because of that, I have to have you know self-respect. And that means sometimes I gotta break it off with a woman who I have a sexual relationship with because she's either become abusive or she's taking advantage of me in some way, shape or form, or she's putting herself above me when a woman should learn how to humble herself and put me above her, because that is what I expect from the women in my life. I expect them to behave that way. And if they do not behave that way, they cannot be in my life. And that's it, because the women in my life are living my life. I am not living theirs, and I refuse to, and I will not live their life. They're living my life, and, being, and living my life with me is a privilege. And if they don't want that, that's fine. They can go elsewhere. And you know what? If, uh, if they go elsewhere, they can choose to be an adulteress. That's fine. I'm not here to say, like, I'm going to d divorce. I'm going to divorce my wife. No, no. But if she wants to divorce me, well, that's, that's her choice. She can make the choice to be an adulteress. That's fine. This is why I teach men, don't chase women. You replace them. So for example, to a married woman in my coach or to a married man in my coaching practice who's having a hard time with his wife, I tell him to not divorce her, typically. I tell him to abandon the soulmate myth and understand that the soulmate myth is a complete lie. And I tell him, hey, look, just go get another woman. Because then your wife will either have to divorce you because she'll make that choice on her own, but it's her becoming, a, she's the one who's doing divorce and she is choosing to become an adulteress. That's on her. So you're not violating Matthew chapter five, verse 31 and 32. Great. And, or, you know, she'll accept the fact that you have another woman and then she'll realize she'll have to compete with that other woman for your attention, which means the hot spider monkey sex will be coming back because women perform better in every area when they know they have to compete with other women for the men in their life. And this is what I ultimately teach those people, those men who have really bad sexless marriages. I tell them, hey, don't chase, um, uh, instead replace. 
and that's that's the wise decision to do. Um, so Lev brought up uh, Matthew chapter five verses twenty eight. Um, Quote, playing devil's advocate here, what about Matthew 5, 28? But I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already uh, committed adultery with her in his heart. I will now answer that one. So I've already answered this to him before, but I think he forgot. Uh, so I will uh, go into detail with it. So notice how it says, uh, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. With. Notice that the word is with her. Okay. So... That woman, uh, why, why is the man looking at the woman lustfully to begin with? How is she dressed? You know, how is that, how is that happen? Is she behaving like an adulteress? Maybe, maybe she actually is a wife of another man. Maybe she's the wife of another man. And she's going around looking like, dressing like a hoe, for example, in public, to gain attention from men. She's behaving like an adulteress. And men would naturally lust after her because she's dressed like a hoe in public, right? And that's causing those other men to stumble. And then they're committing adultery with her in their heart, even though she belongs to another man. It's all about context, folks. If you understand the proper cultural context of what's going on in the Bible and, and in Judeo or Christian culture, especially Judeo culture, you start to understand what's actually happening. Women were the only ones that could commit adultery. And the only way a man commits adultery is if he is doing it with an adulteress. So in order for Jesus to say that, because he was very well educated as you know a rabbi, etc., in order for Jesus to say that, the woman had to have already been an adulteress for the sake of argument, for the sake of argument within the context of what he's saying. As a result of that, it's not supposed to mean, oh, if I just go look at any woman on the street that I lust after, then that automatically makes me an adulterer because I committed adultery. No, that's not actually what is being said. That's not what's being said at all. So... Hopefully, uh, hopefully that makes sense. So, anyway, folks, uh, I also recommend. Uh, um, I never said Eve had sex with Satan. I said she had sex with the serpent, Jonathan Hutchinson. Uh, so, anyway, uh, for other biblical resources, I recommend uh, BlueLetterBible.com. You can check that out. Uh, BlueLetterBible.com uh, has a lot of resources, manuscript resources, Hebrew and uh, Greek text available, uh, and you can do lots of comparative analysis yourself. I highly recommend that tool. So BlueLetterBible.com. I also recommend uh, my source material uh, here at this website uh, at World Events uh, and the Bible.com. Uh, and then, uh, and then uh, go to Bible study at world events in the Bible.com and then scroll down and uh, the beginning, this section right here, this section really well defines uh, the uh, theology or, or no, the garden actually. Um, actually, I just read basically all of the posts from the beginning, the garden and the flood essentially and you'll have an idea of kind of like 
the more hidden teachings uh, relating to what happened in the Garden of Eden and how I teach uh, the book of Genesis compared to how people typically in the church uh, teach it. So you guys can use this as a resource. So anyway, uh, so anyway, um, thank you all for watching. Hopefully uh, you guys learned something of value um, from season 31, episode 13. Uh, the next episode will be far more controversial than this and will be extremely difficult for people to accept. So if you think the sacred cow of premarital sex is really bad, just wait till you see the next sacred cow that I'm going to be talking about in the next episode. So I don't recommend uh, that you miss it because it'll probably be the most crazy thing that I've ever taught in the history of my uh, podcasting career. So... Hopefully you guys see that. So I'll see you guys on season 31, episode 14. So anyway, folks, thanks for watching. And with all that being said, I'll see you guys tonight.